China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Liz Economy, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, currently on leave to serve as senior advisor for China to the Secretary of Commerce. Today we'll be discussing her new book, The World According to China. And I'd like to briefly note that all the opinions Liz expresses here today are her own personal opinions and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. government. Liz, thanks for joining the podcast. Great to be here with you, Jude. So I normally start off these conversations by asking uh, guests for a short intellectual biography, but having heard your recent interview with my colleague Mike Green on his podcast, I'll, I'll spare you uh, repeating that pain. So instead, I wanted to ask about the craft of China analysis. You know, you started your career, as I learned on Mike's podcast, as an analyst of the Soviet Union working in the U.S. government. And I first wanted to ask, how did that initial training and focus on the Soviet Union come to inform your subsequent study of China? So thanks, Jude. I think it informed my study of China in two important ways. You know, first, I began in terms of studying comparative communism. Right. So I was interested in system analysis and comparative politics. So that gave me initially a, a kind of focus on, on domestic politics. So I'm someone who's always believed that it's important to understand domestic politics in order to understand a country's behavior on the global stage. The second thing, and this speaks very directly uh, to my first job, uh, which was at the CIA as a Gorbachev analyst. Really, I, I started working there right when he came to power, in fact. And that, that really affected me in terms of, of placing a sort of an importance on the role of leaders. And so in addition to thinking that domestic politics you know, matters, I also believe that leadership matters and who's in power matters. And I think that's something that you know, really divides our field uh, because there are a lot of people in the China field who uh, approach uh, the U.S.-China relationship, for example, from a structural perspective. I believe that you've got a rising power and a dominant power and by their very nature, there's going to be conflict. I'm more interested in looking at, you know, who's leading a country, what are their interests, what are the politics surrounding it, what are the choices that they make. And so I think those are probably the most important ways in which my, you know, early study and focus on the Soviet Union and really elite politics came to inform how I approach China analysis. That really sets up nicely something we'll, I wanted to ask you about later on in the podcast, which is, you know, thinking about possible post-Xi Jinping trajectories and, and where his, his own fingerprints are enduring or, or just or contingent. After, you know, you've been working on China for, for decades now, and I wanted to ask, you know, once you started more full-time working on China and over the next couple decades, what or who has had the biggest impact on how you think about China? The what, I mean, any sort of frameworks you know, things like fragmented authoritarianism, any sort of heuristics or frameworks which have done them, or, or a comparative lens, what or, or who, I mean, any mentors or individuals or, or scholars or really shaped how you think about the field and the craft? Probably here too, I have, I have two dominant influences. I think first, Mike Oxenberg, who was one of the, you know, great China scholars of, you know, in the U.S. of, of China. He approached China, his, his first seminar that I took at the University of Michigan, on Chinese domestic politics actually had all of the uh, graduate students sitting around a table acting as Chinese leaders. And so you approached uh, the study of China uh, historically, uh, beginning with the, you know, the start of the PRC in, in 1949. But, you know, I was Liu Xiaoqi. 
And so everything that I spoke about and did, you know, I read what Liu Xiaoqi, you know, wrote, uh, documents about him, and then I presented those all along the way throughout the, throughout the seminar as we discussed issues related to Chinese politics. Again, that reinforced, you know, my assessment that leaders matter. I think the, the framework that probably has been most important to me is actually, in some respects, a functional, functional issue that I chose to study at the beginning of my career, which was the environment in China. And so when I first went to China to do my dissertation research, um, which was on uh, Chinese and, and Soviet and Russian strategies on global climate change, actually, you know, I went to China and I was engaging at many different levels of society. And so there were NGO activists uh, involved, uh, beginning to you know develop in China on the environment. The environment was really at the forefront of civil society development in China. I was dealing with environmental protection officials, you know, scholars, Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials, and so it, I think that multi-level approach, right? Again, sensitized me to the idea of sort of dynamism in Chinese society and in Chinese politics that things change, they can change, and it provided sort of a, a different lens through which to understand China that I think has really carried me forward you know, throughout my career. I've just always felt it was important to remember that there are differences of opinion within China, as many differences of opinion as we have in the United States. They also exist in China, even if we can't see them, you know, many segments to society. So I think approaching China through sort of a multi-level analysis, multi-level framework for me has been very important. It also speaks to one of the, the difficult elements of the craft moving forward. Tr if the relationship continues to close or if travel continues to be hard is, you know, we were just talking about open source translations before we started recording. And, and I'm just aware that one of the extraordinary limitations from a pure textual reading is, you know, it'd be like if China was only studying the U.S. by reading policy documents coming out of the U.S. government and didn't know anything about the interpersonal relationships or the functionalities or dysfunctionalities between the national and the subnational, you know, or, or I think a point Ryan Haas made, which I really liked in a recent Brookings piece on, you know, any one document that you read in Chinese is, is in the middle of a conversation. And if you don't know how the conversation started, it's hard to make sense of that. And, and so that's where that on the ground experience is, is so important. I was just going to make a, a what I thought was a funny joke at the time that I, when you played Liu Xiaoqi, I, I hope it didn't include the internment during during the, the Cultural Revolution, yeah, <laughs> right, so, right. And his his ultimate death. No, it yeah. did, it did. And then I had to transition to I think it was Wang Hongwen, uh, who was the next the revolutionary, the young revolutionary, which far less interesting to play. No, but you two individuals who didn't end that well. You you picked the short ends, the short straws. You know, I, I I wanted to move on to the substance of our conversation, and we're, I wanted to talk a bit about the book in a minute. But I first wanted to you know observe that this is now the third book that you've written during the Xi Jinping period, you know, starting with a book more on sort of China as a global and its, and its hunt for resources, but still, I think, came out in 2014. So obviously, some or much of that written after she had come to power. And now you've got two more recent studies, one on, you know, on Xi's China and, and focusing a lot on the domestics, and now this book looking at how China sees the world. And so I thought because you've been such a, a close, careful, nuanced watcher of Xi Jinping now for, for the you know, we're, we're close to the end of his second term. I wanted to ask as a way to think about Xi Jinping and getting to your focus on on the importance of leadership. I thought I'd ask you about if you could grade Xi Jinping and explain a little bit behind the grade of Xi in sort of three different roles that I, I, I see him playing amongst the many that he, he plays. But one is, you know, Xi Jinping as a politician, his skills to maneuver through China's political system 
create, you know, coalitions, get bandwagon, get people to do what he wants to do, shape, shape and guide the bureaucracy. Strategist, so thinking about Xi Jinping as, as a leader of China, as, as a global power. And then looking at Xi Jinping as, as a governor, so thinking about his role as a leader of a massive bureaucracy and the effectiveness with which he shapes and guides that bureaucracy to implement policy, to formulate policy. So if I could start with the first, which is you know, Xi Jinping as, as, as politician, how would you assess him, his strengths, his, his weaknesses here? Such a fun set of, of questions. I think um, Xi Jinping is, is a politician. Look, if you take, you know, a politician's primary objective is staying in power, right, and, and building support. And I think in that context, he has done an amazing job. You know, he gets an A because not only has he stayed in power, but he's been able to rewrite the rules uh, of the game so that he can stay in power longer, you know, as, as president of the country. Um, I mean, I think that's a feat that none of us would have expected um, a Chinese leader to be able to accomplish, uh, given the importance that, you know, Deng Xiaoping, for example, placed on ensuring an orderly transition back in, you know, 1982, I guess it was, when he put that into the Constitution. So I think he's been extraordinarily effective um, as, a, as a politician. I, I think it's important, maybe, and this is something that I've written about separately, to, to recognize, though, that there's a lot of discord in China around Xi Jinping, around the direction of the country as well. And, you know, we spend a lot of time focused on polarization in the United States, but I would argue that China is equally polarized. And if you look at what's happened with women in China during Xi's tenure, the fact that China's ranking you know, in terms of women's access to health and the economy and uh, the political system and the educational system, China's fallen since 2013, right, from 69th to 107th in global rankings. I mean, to me, that's very instructive, right? And we know there are a lot of issues around um, gender right now in China. You know, look at the ethnic divides in China, obviously, Uyghur Muslims, Tibetans, the way that the, this Xi Jinping government treats um, its ethnic minorities. Um, inequality. This is something that Xi Jinping wants to address uh, through his Common Prosperity Program. But again, you know, a, a fairly, you know, China is as unequal economically as the United States. You know, what does that say about his drive, his his socialist drive? And then finally, I think there really is a, a divide among what I would call the creative and entrepreneurial class and the bureaucratic class. And I think this could have very important long-term ramifications. So I guess I would say Xi Jinping starts off as an A, but over time is, is heading maybe more to a B minus <laughs> because we, we don't necessarily see up front in the way that we used to all the dissent, you know, through hundreds of thousands of protests, 120,000 or 80,000 protests in 2010. But we should, be, we should be able to see it if you just peel back the layers a little bit. So that's how I would grade him as a politician. Next, next, she as strategist. And here I was thinking sort of she as shaping China's grand strategy, a strategy for China in the world, sort of moving beyond the domestic and looking now China as a global power. How is he doing? I think an A in terms of articulating a vision and moving toward it. I mean, we can talk more about whether he's actually achieving his, his objectives ultimately. But I think at the outset, there really hasn't been a Chinese leader in the recent past who's been as effective at clearly stating what it is that he wants China to, to be on the global stage, um, what he wants it to be able to do, and then putting in place the necessary sort of policies and capabilities uh, to try to realize those objectives. Finally, is 
she as as governor, as manager of the party state bureaucracy, as formulator of policy and implementator of policy, what would you give him? Yeah, this is maybe the toughest one to evaluate him on for me, I think. I think here too, he's been clear about what he wants to achieve. I mean, he's, you know, had his anti-corruption campaign and now he has common prosperity and he's moved forward in, in many different directions. But I think there's such a sense of unsettlement. I'm not sure that's a, a word, but there's such an unsettling feeling, I think, coming uh, from China domestically right now around the economy, for example. So if you look, you can kind of think, you know, after 10 years of trying to deal with real estate issues, for example, in China, obviously they failed, right? So, I, you know, environmental issues, there's been progress, but clearly not as much progress as there needs to be. So I have a, a more difficult time here, I think, because he has had some successes and he has articulated, you know, a vision. But I think, you know, in the end, if we're trying to talk about the advances that China has made under Xi in terms of societal development, I'm not an economic development. I'm not quite certain that that the grade would be, you know, maybe maybe it's a B. Maybe it's a B. It's a mixed it's a mixed bag, I think. All in all, not a report card you'd feel embarrassed to bring home to your parents, though, you know, across the three categories. Well, I'd say we're, this is like a first quarter report card, you know, <laughs> so as I try to indicate, I think third quarter, the third quarter is looking is looking less, less stellar. I mean, this is where um, and I'm holding up now my well-marked copy of the of the book. I think this is where, yeah, maybe we can we can unpack some of those grades are, are kind of forward look on some of those grades, um, thinking through to a third term, because what struck me about the book is, I, I think you both show how effective Xi and China have been at asserting their power and their interests and, and shaping, especially the areas where either the United States has taken its eye off the ball or, or isn't fully leaning in. China has been such an effective filler of gaps. But, and here I wanted to quote from a sentence, which I think feels like it's, it's, it's such an important thesis for thinking about China moving forward. There are signs that Beijing's confidence may be misplaced. Even as Xi's strategy achieves gains in the near term, it simultaneously creates conditions that constrain its success over the long run. And I felt like there was a, a tension you were describing in China between Xi Jinping's willingness, risk tolerance to be able to, to quote, solve near-term issues, and here I'm thinking about solving the Hong Kong issue by aggressively pushing through the national security law. But the price that he pays for that is other bigger objectives like Taiwan become more complicated. I think we had talked about, or, or admit, you know, obviously a notable example here is Xi Jinping sanctions a whole swath of MEPs, our good friends at Merrick's, which, quote, shows China's toughness in the short term, but of course that denies them an objective that was bigger, which, which, which is the, you know, the CAI which now is is in limbo. So could you unpack that a little bit on, is this a structural tension we're likely to see that's just a manifestation of Xi's own behavior as a, a highly risk-tolerant leader who's you know thumping his nationalist chest? Or might we be able to see Xi adjust here as some of these short-term wins show some longer-term losses? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you gave the, one of the examples, I think that's it's really good. I think, you know, another example is, you know, Xi's actions in the South China Sea, right? He And he calls for the dissolution of the U.S.-led alliance system. He has a different way of thinking of things he, he offers. And yet, what do we see now? We see the creation of an entirely new defense pact, right, with the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. 
which has everything to do with how China is destabilizing the Asia-Pacific region, the threats to Taiwan, etc. So I think, you know, it is, it's really interesting to look at what can appear to be a short-term success, but has attendant long-term costs for China. Um, I think even the Belt and Road could be viewed to some extent in this regard, where, you know, there's an initial enthusiasm and excitement and China's out front leading. And then, you know, the, the reality of the Belt and Road turns into something quite different, right? That, that, yes, you get the advantage of the, you know, Chinese model in terms of, you know, rapid infrastructure-led uh, growth, you know, investment-led growth, but it also is debt-induced growth. It's also, you know, all the externalities around the environment and labor, et cetera, that then produce, you know, popular protests, you know, in virtually all the Belt and Road countries. And despite having, you know, a, a second Belt and Road Forum where there were promises to address these issues, we've seen really almost a complete inability to, to take those on board and significantly shift behavior. And so uh, when I look across sort of the, the range of Chinese initiatives and how Xi Jinping approaches things, I think there are both those that run into trouble like the Belt and Road or like Confucius Institutes or like the Thousand Talents Program and don't achieve their objectives. And then there are others where you just sort of sit back and, and you're stunned. For example, China's response on COVID, right? I mean, that should have been such an enormous diplomatic win uh, for Xi Jinping in China, providing PPE to the world at the world's greatest time of need. And yet, because of the wolf warrior diplomacy, the coercive diplomacy, the boycott against Australia for calling for an investigation, you know, into the origins of the virus, I, you know, he, he created a diplomatic debacle for China instead. And so, you know, is this a structural issue? Is this what's, what's behind it? I mean, I think it's certainly part of his personality. He pushes forward very aggressively. But I also think it speaks to a, a certain lack of concern about the international community and the international community's sort of response to, to China and a, and a focus on domestic population and a belief that, you know, yeah, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. And that is the, that's the mechanism now. So I, I think there are, are multiple factors playing into this. But I think for many of us watching China, it has been astonishing because they seem to be scoring a significant number of own goals uh, under Xi Jinping. Just as a, a quick follow-up to that, do you see, and, and maybe we can disaggregate this, do you see areas where course corrections are possible? And I guess there's kind of tactical course corrections, like we just won't talk about Made in China 2025 anymore, right? Versus kind of deep course corrections where you do see them actually sort of pivot off a of policy because the feedback coming in is so negative or they're starting to see the costs. Are there areas you feel like they, they could course correct? I mean, certainly they could course correct. And I think, you know, you and I have both been involved in discussions with Chinese scholars and analysts where you know, they've told us that, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy is over. <laughs> you know, I remember hearing that six months ago, you know, yes, you know, we understand, we recognize, and you're not going to see any more of this, but but it still is there, right? It has not, it has yeah. not ended, actually. I, I think there's an awareness within China, frankly, that many of, many aspects of, of this foreign policy, this tough foreign policy push are having a negative reaction. I mean, they can't ignore the popular global pop popular opinion polls, you know, that are, you know, at record low levels for trust in Xi Jinping or for a desire for Chinese leadership globally. There clearly are people in China who know about this. So it's either that this information is not getting to Xi Jinping or he just doesn't care. And, and I'll make a final point on this, which is, I think I, I find it fascinating, 
you know, a couple of times now, most recently this past summer, Xi Jinping has talked about the need for China to improve its image, right? It's soft power. It wants to create a, he told diplomats, go out and create a, a credible, lovable, respectable image uh, for China. And to me, just the way that he talks about it suggests that there's a fundamental disconnect in how he understands sort of China's role on the global stage. It's, it can't, you can't create an image, right? There are actions on the ground that China is taking, and that's what the international community is going to respond to. It's not going to be the verbiage, right, yeah. that comes out of a Chinese diplomat's mouth. I just, I would imagine, you know, I remember, I think it was Obama said in his, somewhere after leaving office, maybe it was George W. Bush, that you know, being at the top is such a lonely place to be. And I, I wonder, there feels like there's an element of any top leader is probably isolated and you, the information coming to you is, is kind of controlled. And, and then I just imagine Xing that times, you know, 15 when it comes to any sort of organization where the leader is a, is a real strong personality who has a very clear vision and dangles penalties over. Like, you don't get to the table in that system by knocking on the door and saying, look, boss, we're going off a cliff. You you, you stay at the table by telling the leader good news. And I, I feel like this just is such a hardwired component of decision-making, you know, moving forward. It's I, Jim Cook, who's the CEO of Boston Brewing Company, has the FU rule, it's called, where basically anyone in the company is supposed to be able to knock on his door and say, you're being an idiot, but that—that's the sort of exception that proves the rule in most organizations. It's—it's it's, uh, you know groupthink and follow the leader off the cliff. Except in China's case, the repercussions for all of us are going to be far more far more severe. Just last couple of questions, and I, I know you've got a, a big day and want to let you go, but maybe this one gets into some of the discussions we have had. And I think you mentioned this kind of divides the the community on you know, for lack of a better word, structure versus agency or, or structure. You know. Are there big, deep tectonic plates that are essentially pushing the relationship in, in a certain direction? You know, we've seen this at the sharp end of the argument with folks like John Mearsheimer, who you know, recently in foreign affairs in a very sort of capital R realist lens sort of said even, you know, th this was we were inevitable. We were going to get to this this point. You know, Rush Doshi's The Long Game, which talks about just a real strategic pivot that happened after the first Gulf War, that successive leaders were just you know, enforcing, there's now kind of a revisionist, you know, for a couple of years, kind of a revisionist account showing that a lot of the turn in China's policy actually started in the Hu era. Can you just walk us through how you think about this? Where does structure matter? Where does agency of leader matter? And I think the real reason I'm asking this is I'm, I, I think if Xi Jinping were miraculously at the 20th Party Congress to say, you know what, I'm tired, I've done enough, you know, hand this over to you, you know, Wang Huning, how much of this would change in terms of China's sort of trajectory and how much of this maybe reflects structure or, or an elite consensus in Beijing? I know it's a lot, but just I want to hear your thoughts on this. No, I mean, it's one of the big the big questions, I think, um, in, in the field. So uh, I think if, if Xi Jinping were to pass it off to Wang Huning, not much would change. <laughs> now, if, if Xi Jinping were to have passed it off to Wang Yang, some things might have changed. And I think, you know, you can look at the way that that leaders respond to domestic events, you know, for example, the way that Wang Yang responded, um, you know, to protests in, in Guangdong province, you know, when he was there, you know, he has a very light hand, you know, he has welcomed, right, differences of opinion, he, you know, has a different perspective uh, on things. So do I believe that certain leaders might take China down different paths? I do. I think there are Chinese leaders who would take China down a different path in terms of its own domestic politics. I mean, Xi Jinping himself, right, has 
moved from a situation where there were 7,000 foreign NGOs active in civil society engagement in China prior to his assumption of power to now there are 400. I mean, if if you don't see like a significant shift in in how a leader looks at the outside world, just by that one move, I think you're missing a lot, right? I think he has a fundamentally different conception of the role of international engagement than other Chinese leaders have had. I think the lines of argumentation that contribute or that feed into the direction in which Xi Jinping has moved the country on the global stage have always been there. I agree with that argument. I think many of the policies that he's adopted, including things like the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, those ideas were out there before Xi Jinping came to power, right? Uh, And they fed off of things like Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji's go out strategy. But it takes a certain leader to decide which policy choices am I going to make? Which policies am I going to adopt? And then how am I going to implement them? And I think that's where the role of the individual leader matters. And so, you know, does the Belt and Road look different in somebody else's hands? Or is the Belt and Road even adopted by a Li Keqiang, had it been Li Keqiang instead of, of Xi Jinping? I mean, it's very difficult to answer these questions, but I think in my mind, the sharp turn that we've experienced in many respects uh, over the past 10 years uh, since Xi Jinping came to power, I think should inform our understanding of the importance of elites. And, you know, it may be a difference between intentions where some leaders may have had similar intentions, but capabilities were different. And, you know, capabilities of Hu Jintao may never have reached the point that they've reached under Xi Jinping. So, you know, would things change if Xi Jinping were to leave today? You know, probably not a lot in the initial months. I think he has cemented his leadership. I think he's put in place a lot of people who are supportive of the direction in which he's moving the country. I think, you know, at the 20th Party Congress this fall, something like 11 of the Politburo members are going to be at retirement age and, and could be replaced. So at that point, he's only going to cement his his direction further. I think it will be very difficult. But again, I don't think there's anything preordained about the choices that China simply as a large and powerful country has made. Final question, and I realize this, the prognostication questions are a bit of a mugs game, but I, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, we've got this, feels like this, this really extraordinary event later this year, the 20th Party Congress, and just extraordinary because a kind of a third term leader of the party feels just such a significant break from the trajectory of Chinese politics over the you know, past four decades. And it feels like it opens up a moment where it's unclear, well, to me at least, where China's going on a lot of these key areas. And I wanted to ask, how, how, do you, how are you thinking about the next five to 10 years for China? I'll make an assumption that Xi Jinping is not going to step down at the 20th Party Congress and dictators seem to live to be like 300 years old. So I don't expect him to, to you know, go see Marx anytime soon. So assuming we're, we're in a kind of a Xi Jinping era for the next five to 10 years, what are the what are the kind of questions or trends or developments which you expect to see? And I think maybe a, you can punt on this, but what are the kind of things that we, what are the, the, the unknown unknowns? And this isn't logically impossible to answer, but what are the kind of black swans that you think we should keep our, our eyes out for? I know the point of a black swan is it's often difficult to, to see, but what strikes you as something that could surprise us? So these are always, this is always the most difficult kind of question. I think, you know, Xi Jinping has demonstrated over the past decade that when confronted with challenges, whether they're domestic or on the foreign policy front, he tends to double down. 
And so you get an intensification of control. And so I, I don't see much changing in the wake of the 20th Party Congress in terms of a China that is, you know, more repressive at home and continues to be ambitious on the global stage. I think that is baked into Xi Jinping, and I think it's baked into sort of the policy directions in which he has moved the country. And I think it would be very difficult to, you know, take a step back from them. And I, that's across, you know, all dimensions, right? That's across the sovereignty claims, you know, with regard to Taiwan. That's across, you know, desire to be a leader in East Asia, the Belt and Road, or at least some semblance of a Belt and Road where it's about embedding Chinese values and priorities in other countries, about a desire to, you know, shape norms and institutions and global governance. And I think in, in that sense of indigenizing the Chinese economy and making it more self-sufficient, and we haven't talked about this, which I think is a really important element of Xi's strategy. You know, it's not just technology. I think we're going to see that expand in many respects to include things like culture and tourism and and pharmaceuticals. And, you know, that was discussed quietly at the last NPC. But I think the hint is there that, you know, Xi Jinping really doesn't want any multinational to dominate in the Chinese economy in any sector. And so I think it's going to become more complicated, China's role as a greater, a push for greater self-sufficiency while still, you know, operating within a globalized economy. I don't see any of those ambitions changing in the five years after Xi Jinping comes to power. I think the the black swans maybe two you know one which is only a black swan for some people because it depends on where you sit on this issue of Taiwan and and that is whether or not uh, China launches a military attack against Taiwan. I'm of a mind that this is one of the top priorities for Xi Jinping that there is no clear path that has been articulated by China for peaceful unification. And given that, I think odds of of, a military uh, engagement are high. Uh, So I think that's one that we have to keep our eyes on in a serious way. I think the other is whether or not there are enough headwinds in China. And this would mean domestic economy that continues to slow. You know, you don't have resolution of the real estate crisis. You know, China gets kind of mired in a middle income trap. You continue to have all of the international headwinds that you have now. And then I wonder whether or not there isn't some push within the upper echelons of the Chinese leadership to say, you know, this has gone too far and uh, we need to moderate our policy. And Xi Jinping, yes, you should stay in power, but we're kind of moving you back to the second line, like what happened to Mao Zedong after the Great Leap Forward. And uh, you can become, you know, one of many. Your thought is still so paramount, but but actually we're returning to what has worked, which is more of a collective decision-making process. You know, that's that's kind of, you know, way out there, pie in the sky. But I don't think we should exclude the possibility completely that there aren't differences of opinion, again, that are sitting out there in important sectors in Chinese society and within the Chinese leadership uh, that wouldn't try to take advantage of an opportunity to moderate China's policy. Yeah, these systems look so stable until suddenly they don't. And suddenly you start to see all these different voices I really, really appreciate this. Really enjoyed the book and all of your close analysis of, of China for, for so long, and I've learned so much. And, and um, we're all thankful you're where you're, you are where you are right now with, with your level of, of expertise at, at this moment. So um, thank you for the book. Thank you for your time today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, 
China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 